Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting into that right now. There are three common views of history, and uh, surprisingly, they impact us in many ways in our day-to-day life. The first is the cyclical view. Around and around she goes, where she stops, nobody knows. King Solomon wrote about this, Ecclesiastes 1.9. He said, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. This is the Eastern view of history. Very popular in Hinduism with their yugas, their time cycles. And they have their reincarnation which is a continuous cycle of death and rebirth. It's also very popular today in the New Age movement. So uh, when you think of Gandhi and the Da Vinci Code and Deepak Chopra and Marianne Williamson, who briefly ran for president last year, the UFOs, a lot of talk about that right now, Eckhart Tolle, yoga, and we can go on and on and on. A lot of connections with the Eastern cyclical view of history. The cyclical view of history is ultimately meaningless. It's not going anywhere. Our human existence is equivalent to crops that are planted each year and harvested in the fall, and the next spring, the whole cycle begins again. Okay? The events of history in that cycle are devoid of significance. And any sense of responsibility ultimately is erased under that worldview. Okay? The second view of history is even worse. <laughs> it's the evolutionary view of history. It's rooted in secular humanism. Carl Sagan said the cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. What a depressing thought. <laughs> and yet this is, what, uh, this is what Bart Campolo, remember when I was talking about him, Bart Campolo told his dad, Tony Campolo, when he decided that he was an atheist. He said, hey dad, this world is all there is. Let's make the best of it. The evolutionary model has dominated modern American society. Follow the science, they'll say, as if somehow it's more scientific to believe that our complex universe came into existence by chance. I mean, think about it. Would it not be more likely to believe that a genie in a bottle could appear, snap her fingers, and make a brand new car? Would that not be more logical to believe that than everything we see coming into existence by chance? Now, the third view, of course, is the biblical view. The biblical view of history has profoundly influenced Western thought. For centuries, 
Most of our greatest scientists were Bible-believing Christians, like Isaac Newton, outstanding Christian. He wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. Hardly ever hear about stuff like that, you know? But, but he loved the Lord. And then there's Joseph Lister, the founder of antiseptic surgery. There's Louis Pasteur, the founder of bacteriology. There's Johannes Kepler, the founder of celestial mechanics. There is Robert Boyle, the founder of modern chemistry. All of them strong Bible-believing Christians, brilliant human beings who believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believed in the biblical view of history. They believed that history is his story. It really is. It's the story of our creator. It's the story of a beautiful garden where man rebelled against God. The first three chapters of the Bible tell us the true story of paradise lost. What a tragedy. The middle of the story talks about this magnificent rescue mission. The man who was sent to earth to rescue us, to pay the price for our sin, that man literally split history in half, B.C., A.D. The end of the story, the last three chapters of the Bible, is the true account of paradise regained. That's our destiny, folks. If you're a follower of Christ, that's where you're heading. But it's not an easy road. There are a boatload of temptations along the way, as well as a vicious enemy who is hurling arrows at you every single day. Have you felt his arrows this week? I sure have. The biblical view is linear. It has a beginning. It has an end. And you know what? Nothing is going to change what God has revealed in his word. Job told the Lord, Job 42, I know that you can do all things. No plan, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God says, Isaiah 43, when I act, who can reverse it? Isaiah 46, God says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. In other words, <laughs> you can take the word of God to the bank. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. All of this is very important to understand as we turn our attention to the word of our Lord in Matthew 24, 21. There is, um, this whole passage talks about an implosion at the end of the age. But I want you to know today that this implosion at the end of the age is not by chance. There's a method to the madness, or at least it appears to be madness. In reality, it is anything but. 
in these two verses, Jesus reveals three historical details about this future period of history known as the Great Tribulation. Now, the first detail about the Great Tribulation is this, unequaled distress. Verse 21, Jesus says, from then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. When I was a kid, my grandpa used to measure every blizzard by the Armistice Day blizzard of 1940. And he'd say to me, now, Denny, that was a blizzard. It was weeks before we got back to normal. You ever heard things like that? We're used to hearing stuff like that. Well, you know, we say, well, you, well that was bad. We till you hear this, you know? And yet when it comes to Jesus, it's important to know Jesus is not one to exaggerate. The last three and a half years of the tribulation period, it's going to be hell on earth. It really is. Which brings up a question, why does God allow such an awful period in history to happen? Why does he allow it? Folks, it certainly isn't his perfect will. His perfect will would be for all of us to defeat temptation every time. And that is possible. The Bible tells us that. That God always provides a way of escape, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But we don't always take that way of escape, do we? So this brings up the matter of God's permissive will. He does permit sin and rebellion and evil to happen. But here's the good thing if you're a Christian. Romans 8, 28 says... And we know that all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God has a way of turning the tables on Satan's plans. Does that over and over again throughout history. For example, even secular historians have acknowledged the tragedy of the Holocaust Six million Jews perished in Europe. But that period of time created a brief window, a wave of worldwide sympathy for the Jewish people that enabled the nation of Israel to be born. God loves to take evil and bring good out of it. By the way, if you want to check that out, Watch the movie, it's an old one, starring Kirk Douglas, John Wayne, called Cast a Giant Shadow. It's the story of the creation of Israel. Magnificent. God can take bad and make good out of it. The same thing's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. God is going to use the intense suffering of this time to drive his people, the Jewish people, to their Messiah. For the first time in history, a majority of the Jewish people will see Jesus for who he is, for who he really is. Zechariah 13.8 describes this time. 
in the whole land, declares the Lord. This is going to happen during the tribulation period. Two-thirds, this is of the Jews, will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. And this third I will bring into the fire, and I will refine them like silver and test them like gold, and they will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. A few weeks ago, I had someone ask me a very interesting question. I said, Pastor Denny, what if the Jews had received Jesus as their Messiah when he came the first time? Could they have avoided all of this suffering that they have endured since the time of Christ? In other words, would history have unfolded a different way? And undoubtedly it would have. If the Jews truly accepted Jesus as their Messiah that first time, they would have allowed him to die for their sins as the perfect Lamb of God because they would have understood that the Old Testament remedy for sin, all of the sacrifices of the animals, they would have known that that is temporary, but they would have known they need a permanent remedy that can only be brought by the perfect Lamb of God, the Messiah. And after Jesus resurrected, the Jews would have hailed him as their eternal king. And together, the Jewish people, along with their Messiah, Jesus, would have set about expelling the Romans. And then they would have spread the gospel to the nations. And the gospel would have been received with joy. History would have unfolded much, much differently. But of course, that didn't happen, did it? Which brings up another question. Does God have a plan B? <laughs> and if, or plan, uh, does God have a plan A, and then, then that goes haywire, and then does he move then to a plan B? Now, we can ask ourselves that same question. If I marry the wrong person, do I then go to plan B? If I rebel in my teenage years, if I mess up my life with drugs and alcohol, am I permanently consigned to plan B? Friends, two things must be said about that. The first is that sin always has consequences. Okay? The Bible says God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that shall he also reap. So if you commit adultery, for instance, there are going to be consequences from that. And folks, they're going to be very painful consequences. But the good news is this. God can and take all of that pain and suffering, much of which could have been avoided, and he can still take all of that and bring good out of it. And that's what he's going to do during the tribulation period. This horrible, awful period of time on planet Earth where over half of the population will perish is going to be followed 
by the most glorious period of time on planet Earth when God makes all things new. I'm speaking here of the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. Now think about this. Seven years of tribulation, 1,000 years of peace on the planet. Isn't that the way God works? You can read, if you want to read about the millennium, you can read Isaiah 65 and 66. You can read Ezekiel 40 to 48, nine chapters about this period of time. You can read Zechariah 14, where it says clearly that the Lord will rule over the entire earth, this earth. Its capital will be in Jerusalem. You can read all about that. The lion, the Bible says, will lie down with the lamb. The human lifespan for mortals will be extended again to hundreds of years. Human beings will live seven, eight, nine hundred years, just like they did before the flood. Peace will reign over the entire planet. It's going to be a glorious age. And it's going to be appreciated all the more after the horrors of the Great Tribulation. Now, the same thing happened when Jesus rose from the grave on Easter Sunday morning. What made that event so powerful is that it came on the heels of the worst event in history, the public murder of the Son of God on Good Friday. We must take this into consideration as we study the horror of the Great Tribulation. Is it bad? Yes, it's bad. But folks, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. Amen. Amen. The pain of the cross will give way to the joy of the resurrection. Let's move to the second historical detail that Jesus gives about the Great Tribulation. Extinction threatened. That's true. Verse 22, Jesus said, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. The Great Tribulation is going to be a time of death on a scale never before seen. It's going to come in two waves, according to the book of Revelation. Revelation 6-8, one-fourth of the population will perish during the fourth seal judgment. Then in Revelation 9-18, during the sixth trumpet judgment, another one-third of mankind will perish. So that we know that at least one-half of the population of the earth population of the earth is pushing 8 billion right now, so we know that at least 4 billion will perish during the tribulation period. Could be more than that. So how's it going to happen? The theories have been endless, especially since the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. Movies about James Bond, TV series like 24, have continued to fan the flames. Consider this. When Sue and I came to Annandale in 1992, I had just turned 34 years old. Full head of hair. Mm hmm. When I came in 1992, that tells you how long ago it was. Ross Perot was running for president. Remember him? He had one main issue, the national debt. 
He said, it's wrecking our economy. We got to get rid of it. You know what the national debt was in 1992? $4 trillion. You know how much debt we've racked up in the last 16 months since COVID started? $4 trillion. Think about that. Just think about that for a moment. 216 years of American history, we rack up $4 trillion in debt. 16 months of COVID, we rack up $4 trillion in debt. Are we heading toward trouble? I would say we are. As my dad used to say, the inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> now, others would point to a crime wave that's going to take planet Earth down. And it's interesting, crimes exploding. What do they do? Defund the police. That's the mindset today. How on earth would you come up with something like that? Still others point to natural disasters. For decades, experts have been warning us that California is on the verge of the big one, the gigantic earthquake along the San Andreas Fault, or perhaps it could be this killer volcano <laughs> that blows up in Yellowstone Park. Maybe that'll be the culprit. You know, every time I'm out there, you know, you visit all these geysers and so forth, and they're burping and belching and all this stuff. You, they're sitting on a gigantic volcano there. And there's been a lot of research on that. When is that baby going to blow? Now, you add to all of that an endless list of terroristic threats armed with nuclear devices and dirty bombs and other weapons of mass destruction. And you know what, folks? We haven't even got the pandemics yet. Who could ever have predicted a simple virus, probably made in a Chinese lab, could unleash such havoc as we've seen over the entire planet? And then there's the threat of conventional warfare. What do we do if China just suddenly takes Taiwan okay, and dares us to do something about it? And there's a hundred other scenarios like that. North Korea, Iran, Ukraine, where they were saber-rattling this week. The book of Revelation points to a wide array of disasters, many of which are veiled in symbolic language. I mean, think about it. If one ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal for a couple of weeks can disrupt the entire world supply chain, what are we going to do if there's an EMP attack? That's an electromagnetic pulse that can potentially, one bomb, take out the entire power grid of the U.S. Is it any wonder that a huge poll, 2013, found that 41% of Americans believe we're living in the end times? 77% of evangelicals? And there's a lot of liberals that agree. Not to be left out, those with a secular worldview, they also believe that the end of the age is approaching. Now, they take a different track for this. January of last year, the doomsday clock was moved to 100 seconds from midnight. 
Nuclear risk and climate change are the factors that are, they're monitoring the closest. Now, when the doomsday clock originated in 1947, it was set at seven, seven minutes to midnight. After communism fell in 1991, it was moved to 17 minutes before midnight, but now it has been gradually nudged closer to where it is today, only 100 seconds to midnight. Friends, we live in a fragile world. It's fragile. But this is exactly what Jesus predicted 2,000 years ago. Think about this. Up to 150 years ago, the fastest form of transportation on the planet was horseback. Exactly what it was in the time of Christ. Today, we're sending spacecraft to Pluto. We're preparing for a manned mission to Mars. Only Jesus could have seen how all of this will unfold. And it is unfolding right on schedule. Let's move to the third historical detail. Human extinction will be threatened, but it'll be cut short. This leads us to the third historical detail Jesus gives about the Great Tribulation, and it is grace extended. Praise God. Verse 22, Jesus said, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, these days will be shortened. Why will those days be shortened? What does it say? Because of God's great love for his people. It's interesting that this is the first time in the Bible where the word elect is used. It means the chosen ones. The use of this term has raised a lot of questions since Jesus walked this planet. Does God, does God choose us or do we choose him? In fact, there's even schools of theology about this. God chooses us, the Calvinists. We choose God, the Arminians. Okay? You know what the Bible teaches? Both. The Bible teaches both. Yeah, both are taught in Scripture. When the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul did not reply, wait until God chooses you. He did not say that, no. He instead, he replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what he replied. You know, folks, we're just like the disciples. We make a choice as to whether we will follow Jesus or not. In Matthew 7, 13, Jesus invites everyone to enter through the narrow gate Jesus invites everyone to walk the narrow road that leads to life. But then he says, but few there be who will find it. The decision is yours. Those who make that decision are ultimately the same ones that have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to Ephesians 1.4. Which comes first? There's a degree of mystery as to how this all works. Does God choose us first? Do we choose him first? There's a degree of mystery here. 
But remember, we have a God who knows the end from the beginning and can see with crystal clarity at any point in history. Now, during the tribulation period, there will be a remnant among both the Jews and the Gentiles that will come to Christ, though it will cost them dearly. Many will be martyred. Many others will make it all the way to the end of the tribulation period, and they will enter into the millennial kingdom with natural mortal bodies. Those are the ones that are going to be having kids and populate the millennium. Meanwhile, for us today, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord right now, you're going to be going up in the rapture. Hey, praise God. Before this, all this craziness gets unleashed on planet Earth. First Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible says, according to the Lord's own word, Jesus himself taught this, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up, will be snatched up. We will be raptured with them in the clouds and are left to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord, therefore encourage each other with these words. Now the reason this was such an encouragement to them in the time of the Thessalonians and today is that verse 15 says the Lord himself taught that he would rescue his people, he would snatch them out before the tribulation happened. That's why Paul said, encourage one another with these words. As you know, as you may know, there are wonderful Bible-believing Christians who teach that God's people will go through the tribulation period and not be raptured until the end. They're good people, okay? But it is hard for me to understand what purpose a rapture would have at the end of the tribulation period to rapture them to heaven and then to bring them back right away to earth for the millennium. Doesn't make sense to me. What does make sense is that Jesus compared his coming to the days of Noah and to the days of Lot. In both situations, God removed his people from danger before judgment fell. With Noah, God led him to build an ark, and that ark was a refuge during the year-long worldwide flood. With Lot, God sent two angels into the city, and they removed Lot and his family from danger, and then judgment fell on the city. I believe the biblical case for a rapture before the great tribulation is sound. Before those seven years, hell on earth will take place. I believe the Lord is going to snatch out his people just like he did with Noah and with Lot. But there is a caveat we must keep in mind. You know what happened when Christ came the first time? There were a lot of surprises, weren't there? Events unfolded when Jesus came the first time far differently than many expected. 
Almost no one understood the cross until after it happened. And even then, it took 40 days of Jesus teaching after he was resurrected just to straighten out all their theology. So friends, all of that tells us that most assuredly, there will be surprises when Christ returns. The Bible gives us the broad outline of what will come to pass. It does not give us the fine details. I close with this. Persecution and opposition and hostility and suffering are never easy. You know what? I don't like them. (laughs) And I'll bet you don't either. You know, for us as Americans, we have been blessed by an abundance of creaturely comforts, haven't we? I like juicy cheeseburgers. Oh, my goodness. I'm taking a chance putting that picture up there. Oh, my goodness. I love a pile of fried onions on them, a basket of crispy French fries, and if I really want to splurge, I like to wash it down with a cherry Coke. Wow. Even better than cheeseburgers, though. I like to be out on my old pontoon on a hot summer day, surrounded by all of my favorite people that call me grandpa. Now you can fill in the blanks with all of your favorite things to do. Maybe it's fishing. Maybe it's golfing. Maybe it's camping, bonfires, carnivals, parades, garage sales. You can plug in your favorite vacations, hiking in the Rocky Mountains cruising in the Caribbean, canoeing in the Boundary Waters, flying, fishing in the Canadian wilderness. We Americans love our creaturely comforts, don't we? But we all know the fun doesn't last forever. Life takes a lot of unexpected twists and turns. But you know what? You can either go through those dark valleys with Christ or without him. It's your choice. I do believe that all followers of Christ will miss out on the great tribulation, these seven years at the end of history. But you know what? That in no way means that we will miss out on all suffering. Suffering is part of our journey on this planet. It's part of the curse of the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. I love the way that Jesus ends his teaching in John chapter 16. He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble, lots of it. But take courage. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Friends, put your trust in him. And no matter what trial is thrown at you, he's going to lead you through.